Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So I'm really pleased we've got Professor Ed Aspinall, who's come up from the Australian National University. He is obviously Professor at ANU, but currently for, I don't know how many times you've been the head of PSC, Political and Social Change, a few times, is now currently heading Political and Social Change in the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs. You'll know that Ed has published a whole number of really significant works during his career. But at the moment, I think, so this book I presumably is in press or forthcoming? Uh, yes, it was just sent to the copy editors three days ago. Wonderful. Okay. But it's going to be presenting this book that's been co-authored with Meredith Weiss, Alan Hicken and Paul Hutchcroft from the ANU as well, forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. So, Ed, over to you on mobilising for elections, patronage and political networks in Southeast Asia. Thanks so much, and thank you to the Griffith Asia Institute for the invitation. It's really great to be here and to see so many people gathered together. This book, as Ian mentioned, co-authored with Meredith Weiss, Alan Hicken and Paul Hutchcroft, is really the culmination of a big 10-year effort we've been making to study. It initially began as a project on money politics across Southeast Asia, primarily focusing on Malaysia, the Philippines and Indonesia with a bit of additional comparison from other countries that I'll explain a bit. And it really began with sort of our observation of the ubiquity of patronage politics. And by patronage we mean sort of material benefits that are distributed in exchange for political support around elections across the region. So just to sort of give you a taste of where we started, I mean, we were, we'd all been studying elections in these countries separately and observed obviously obvious forms like vote buying, the distribution of money. So we conducted surveys which show that, especially in Indonesia and the Philippines, about a third of voters say they receive cash payments around election times. But then also a huge array of other forms of distribution that takes place, a lot of it targeting individuals, such as gifts of foodstuffs, such as noodle, rice, cooking oil, canned food, clothes and clothing of all sorts of kinds, religious paraphernalia, household items, crockery, cutlery, plastic furnishings, cooking utensils, stoves, toasters all those sorts of things, medical checkups, free dental work, scholarship, funerals in some cases, all sorts of sort of games, parties, chess competitions, fishing competitions, a chess competition in one case, bicycle clubs, free notary services, free health insurance, help with all kinds of government services. And then for targeting groups, all sorts of gifting that targets women's organisations or community groups of various forms, farmers, groups and so on, often in the forms of things like mats, chairs, tarpaulins, cooking utensils, sound systems, then for places like churches or mosques tiles, roofs, water tanks, refurbishment of various kinds for communities, things like fogging against mosquitoes, asphalting of roads, building of new roads, irrigation channels, walls around community facilities of various kinds, renovations of public buildings, farming or fishing materials, boats, chicken coops, chickens, ducks, goats, cows, basically all sorts of livestock, fertiliser, Anyway, you get the picture, right? So there's a huge <laughs> array of this sort of gifting that goes on around elections. And we wanted to sort of make sense of this. 
Oh, sorry, I forgot I even had a slide on that. This is a banner we observed in the state of Kelantan in Malaysia, and basically it's a slogan from one of the opposition parties at that time. This is in 2013. It says, if they give you money, take it. If they give you clothing or cloth, wear it. If they give you sugar, stir it into your coffee, I suppose. But when it comes to voting, still vote for PASS, uh, the opposition party. So again, I mean, you see this sort of slogan right across the region as well, you know, take the money but vote your conscience. Sometimes this happens right in the open. This is from the Philippines where they don't really pull their punches sometimes about this sort of thing. But very often it happens, of course, much more clandestinely or discreetly, although it must be said that in parts of Indonesia and the Philippines in particular, vote buying takes place pretty openly, of course, although it is technically illegal. And there's a real sort of art form around this. For example, we took this photo when the politicians concerned were explaining to us that the professionals do it this way, where you fan out the notes so you can see immediately at how much money there is. And I mean, if you put them in a stack, that's like a, you know, amateurs do it that way. Um, anyway, so that's the starting point. The goals of the project are pretty straightforward. This is how we started. You know, so Really, these two sort of guiding questions, what are the nature of the networks that are involved in this form of distributive politics, patronage politics, and what are the varying components or forms of patronage that get distributed? How do they influence electoral outcomes? Then after we... So we're really, in those first two questions, we're interested in sort of mapping patterns of variation. Then we look at the causes. How might we explain the patterns of variation that we find across and within these countries. And then we're looking, although it must be said in the final outcome of the book, we didn't talk so much about this, but we are certainly interested in the effects of this form of politics for the quality of democracy and so on. There has been a little bit of a burst of literature or renewed interest in this topic over the last 10 to 20 years. A lot of the early studies of patron-client politics really grew out of studies of agrarian politics 40 or 50 years ago. Scholars like James Scott wrote about this in the 60s and early 70s. A bit of a loss of interest in it over a while, but there has been renewed interest in the last one or two decades, usually going under this sort of umbrella term, clientelism, where clientelism is seen as a form of politics based on contingent exchange, so a kind of a quid pro quo sort of arrangement. The tendency of the literature, however, is either to focus on particular components, particular types, so you know, you'll get a particular book on vote buying, for example, or on port barrelling, or to sort of mash these things together under this certain this overall catch-all category. And a lot of the attention really in the recent period has been on the micro-foundations of how this process works, you know, so who gets targeted for gifts, how do politicians choose who to target? How do they guarantee contingency, i.e. how do they guarantee that voters who receive their gifts actually get pay them back with votes and so on? We have quite a bit of that in our book, but it's not our major goal. Our major goal instead is to pull back and try and identify big and broad patterns. A large number of countries around the world do practice this form of politics. You know, it's really critical to how democratic politics happens in many countries of the world. But there's been relatively little effort to try and systematically compare such countries to explain the different forms of patronage politics and to think about where they might come from. Patronage and clientelism in literature are often treated as being synonymous. We do try to tease them out. So we, as I mentioned before, we think of patronage as the material resource. So patronage is the thing that gets distributed at 
as I said before, there's many, many different forms, but typically they're you know, cash or goods or some other sorts of benefits, such as a job or a contract, access to a government service of some kind. Whereas clientelism we think as being more about a particular form of personalised political relationship through which patronage is often distributed. So we think about patronage referring to resources and flows, clientelism is really about linkages and ties. Not all patronage involves clientelism and not all clientelism involves patronage. The networks, so just to focus on these first couple of categories, patronage politics basically requires networks of brokers, especially if it's individualised patronage, so you're delivering to individual voters. Patronage politics requires networks of brokers who identify recipients, make deals with them, and then deliver that benefit, and then try to follow through to ensure that there is reciprocation in the form of a vote. And so a lot of our research also focuses at the nature of these networks. So one of the characteristics of this form of politics we identify across Southeast Asia is political candidates invest a huge amount of resources into mapping who their voters are and targeting them for these sorts of gifts. So in the Indonesian case, for example, individual candidates will form these teams of brokers which can consist of many thousands of people who will collect names, addresses, details and so on of the voters they're going to target with gifts. I'll talk a bit more about that later. But basically there are different forms of networks that candidates or political candidates can draw upon. The ones we're most familiar with, of course, are national political parties. So parties can also play this role of mediating between candidates and voters in, when it comes to distributing benefits, but they also can play other roles. They can coordinate access to resources for candidates, share resources, so when it comes to providing the resources used in patronage politics, parties can play a really important role, and they can also ensure that candidates share their organisational efforts. And as you sort of go down this list, these other forms of networks are less and less able to play those additional roles. Local machines are like parties, but based somewhat more fluid, personalised, and based at a local rather than national level. Ad hoc teams are the form we see in Indonesia. I'll talk about these in a short while. These are teams that are formed for the duration of an election campaign only and then dissolve. But the other thing we should note here is that these Mechanisms can also graft onto all sorts of other forms of networks, in particular identity-based networks. Not only identity-based networks, but these are really common. So religious organisations or religious networks of various kinds, congregations, groupings arranged around particular preachers and so on. So we can think of these sort of as modular forms which can sort of be plugged onto these locally rooted networks as well. Patronage we think of as coming in these three basic forms. So micro, a lot of what I was talking about before. So these are individualised benefits, you know. As an individual voter you get an envelope containing cash or you get a packet of noodles or whatever it is. A lot of the things I was talking about before. Each of these forms is associated with particular challenges. Micro involves this challenge of constructing these really massive brokerage teams because you've got to have individual brokers who can connect you individually to these very large numbers of voters and then all the sort of problems about trust and leakage of funds and ensuring that voters really deliver gets associated in particular with that form. What we call miso patronage or miso particularism is sort of this 
middle level, basically it means patronage of the target's groups, so typically members of a local geographically defined community, a village or a neighbourhood is really common, or it could be like a women's organisation or a religious group or a farmer's cooperative, many, many other different forms of groups, and the benefits therefore target the members of this group collectively. So renovations for you know, a road, for example, in a village, or the provision of a sound system for a church choral group, sort of standard sort of examples. The issue here is sort of one of free riding. You know, you might target your goods to members of that community, but a lot of people won't feel obliged to repay you with a vote. So it's really a key here is getting the, a leader, an authoritative leader or leaders of that group to sort of buy into the exchange. What we call macro-particularism, these are sort of nationally or regionally based programs which should be distributed programmatically, say a scholarship that goes to poor students, but that get hijacked by individual politicians. And that hijacking can take various forms, but the key thing here is that this element of discretion gets into the actual distribution. So rather than being a part of a family who's receiving a scholarship for their, one of their children and feeling, well, we're getting this because we're poor, you feel, well, we're getting this as a result of the intervention of politician, you know, Mr A or Ms B. There's a different question there about the degree to which that intervention really does hinge on discretion. But that's the sort of the three levels we see distributed in different mixes across the different countries. And that's the key point I'm going to be coming to here, is that these different networks and these different forms of patronage sort of come together in distinctive patterns across the countries we look at. So the research, just to give you a bit of a, a background on the research, it really is, I've certainly never been involved in anything like this before, it more or less has been the culmination of about a decade's worth of work, focusing on three primary countries. We've had these really big research efforts around national elections in those three primary countries. We were also going to do Thailand, but there was a military coup, so that got in the way of our plans. So we sort of treat that more as a secondary case. We did do some research around a national election in Timor-Leste as well, and Meredith does a lot of work in Singapore. So multiple collaborators, and that was one of the distinctive features of this work, that we really did work a lot with local research partners in each country. And our basic modus operandi around these elections was to work with teams of researchers coordinated by partners from particular universities in each country, the University of Malaya in Malaysia, Gajamada in Indonesia and De La Salle in the Philippines. And then we recruited these big teams of 50 to 70 researchers for each election and they did what we think of as this sort of e extensive ethnographic research, each spending about a month or so in a particular locale that was selected to sort of give us a bit of a representative picture of the variety of political contexts across the country. And then they shadowed candidates, interviewed political brokers, candidates, observed political events, often got very close to candidates and observed how this sort of this process of gifting worked in practice. We also did national surveys. And an interesting thing we did, which we were very fortunate and very grateful to a lot of the politicians involved, is as I mentioned before that these candidates, both in Indonesia and the Philippines, draw up these lists of often many, many, many thousands of voters. These lists are collected by their brokers and are used then to identify who they're going to distribute cash to at election time. So we were able to compile some of those lists and then sample both the brokers and the voters on them to give us a sort of a picture of 
you know, who the brokers were, what sort of people they were targeting, and so on. And it did produce a lot of works along the way. So part of our method, because we were working so closely with collaborators in Indonesian, Malaysian and Philippine universities in particular, a lot of our colleagues also, of course, this is obviously something we were very much wanted to encourage as well, were also very much in, interested in publishing their work. So we published a whole bunch of edited volumes that were based around case studies that a lot of our Philippines, Indonesian and Malaysian collaborators wrote as part of this research. So these are sort of steps leading up to this overarching volume that presents the overall findings of the research. I mentioned before that, so our sort of overarching concern then was to identify, well, how and why do these patterns of patronage politics vary, both across and within our cases? So we're interested in identifying these sort of distinctive national patterns, but then also looking at what accounts for variation within particular countries, because there is quite a lot of variation, for example, in even simple things like the intensity of vote buying across different regions. Just to give you a sense of where we came down, in terms of the sort of the between case variation, so this is in terms of identifying national patterns, what we come up with is this finding, as I said, that there is a sort of a, you can discern these patterns by which you see distinctive mixes of patronage distribution, mixes of macro, micro, miso, being associated with distinct network forms, you know, national parties, local machines, ad hoc teams, and so on. And we argue that these sort of cohere into distinctive systems, that the coincidence of these forms of patronage and networks are not merely coincidental, but have their own sort of internal logic. And we call these systems electoral mobilisation regimes. So just to go through them really briefly, in Malaysia, probably a case which would be make most intuitive sense to many readers, basically it's a national party or a national mach party machine electoral mobilisation regime. So a large dominant party captures the state from very early in the independence period, is pretty much able to shape or fashion the bureaucracy in its own likeness, so it has pretty unconstrained access to state resources that can be put to patronage purposes. And if we think of those sort of func those other functions apart from distributing patronage that networks or, or organisations can play, has this really high ability to sort of coordinate the distribution of resources and electoral effort through these national parties. So the result is that we see relatively little need in Malaysia for individual candidates to organise their own campaigns or really even to do a lot of the sort of individual micro-level targeting that we see in Indonesia and in the Philippines. Instead, a lot of the emphasis in the Malaysian system is on these miso and macro levels, so patronage that targets groups and communities or programmatic benefits which get introduce this element of contingency into them. So just to give you a couple of concrete examples, one of the distinctive features of the Malaysian system is this reliance by elected members of parliament on constituency development funds. So these are allocations of funds that are given to elected members of the government parties for distributing to members of their electoral districts and typically go to sort of projects for you know, community development, so MISO level patronage or benefiting a particular community group, 
renovating a basketball court or fixing up a mosque or all of that sort of stuff. So classic sort of pork barrel politics, using government funds that's officially allocated to members of parliament. And the distinctive feature of the Malaysian system is those community development funds, constituency development funds, just don't go to members of the opposition parties. So there's quite an obvious and open element of discrimination in the allocation of those sorts of resources. But the other thing we get there is a lot of this sort of what we think of as this hijacking of programmatic politics. So this actually implementation of various sorts of social welfare schemes, which we know has been a big part of the Malaysian development model, but with this attempt to inject an element of contingency into them. So, for example, we were there in 2013 election. During this time, the government was introducing this Bantuan Rakyat Satu Malaysia, this One Malaysia assistance scheme, which came in many different forms. There were all sorts of sort of subsidies and programs for school students, older people, poorer families, and so on. And in quite a lot of the locations where our researchers were doing their work, they found that even though these were probably in all likelihood really being distributed without a lot of political discrimination, a lot of individual citizens in order to enlist to these programs would have to go not to the local government office but to the local UMNO office, the party, right? So it gives them this sense that they are dependent on the party for access to this particular scheme. The Indonesian model is sort of the complete opposite of this, right? So this is where candidates tend to form these brokerage teams that are quite ad hoc. So a candidate in Indonesia, the term used is team success or a success team. So an individual candidate will form one of these teams in the months leading up to an election. And once the election is over, it will pretty much dissolve. There might be a few favoured members of that team who then go on to be, you know, if the candidate gets elected, they might be appointed as assistants or advisors or that sort of thing. But overall, the team pretty much dissolves. And it's this typical sort of brokerage structure where a candidate will get a few friends to take charge of, say, it's at a district-level election, to appoint the coordinators at the sub-district level, who then use their own personal networks to recruit coordinators at the village level, who then re recruit coordinators at the neighbourhood level, who then recruit these people. There's all different sorts of terms used for them, but the standard one is coordinator lapangan, which means like a field coordinator. So these are then the individuals who will enlist 10 to 20 voters, sign them up to support the candidate and then give them cash or other benefits approaching the election. And this is how we got those lists then which we used to make some of those voter and broker surveys. You can see how this system is based on these sort of classic sort of personalised relationships. I mean, there's all sorts of elements can infuse these. You can get a more religious candidate who uses more sort of religious networks. You can get a woman candidate who will use sort of women's organisations to build these teams. But the basic model is the same and it can overlay a great deal of variety. But you can also see how once you, it's like this one, two, three, four, five, six degrees of separation, right? And by the time you get to the base of these pyramids, you'll often get people who have really tenuous ties with the candidate. Often, I mean, if we asked about this, quite a high proportion had never even heard of the candidate before they started working for them. So there are all these sort of problems and this sort of bedevils Indonesian election campaigns, like you pass the money down through the structure to distribute it to voters, you know, a large part of it goes missing. And the rate of return on gifts to votes is often very low. So in central Java we looked at this and 
candidates were getting about a 20% return. So you distribute 10,000 envelopes with cash, you get about 2,000 votes on average. Quite a bit of variety there, though. You see as well that this pattern is really associated with micro and some meso-level targeting. And one of the distinctive features of Indonesian election campaigning is that a lot of this takes place sort of privately. The source of the money might be from the state in the money that's been attained corruptly, but it's all taking place outside official channels. And it's a very highly fragmented and personalised team. That's just to illustrate the diverse character of these teams. The woman on the right was a candidate in South Sumatra and she was associated with these sort of community-level organisations of, would they say housewives, but basically uh, women at the community level. And she dubbed her team, she said it's not a success team, it's a grandma's team. <laughs> team, team Nenek Nenek. So the Philippines is sort of somewhere in between this, and it's really a system which is an electoral mobilisation regime that's based around a local political machine. So quite similar to the Indonesian situation in that it's really very localised, but similar into the Malaysian situation in so far that it's more institutionalised. These are more permanent arrangements than we find in Indonesia. So the local political machine is often branded with its own team name, sometimes its own party name, so this is at a sort of a municipality, sort of a town level. And these machines are usually centred around a locally powerful politician and his or her family, so it's a very dynastic sort of a system, but extend beyond the family via personal or clientelistic relationships to incorporate these layers of brokers, and the, the term used in the Philippines is leader, L-I-D-E-R, who do the candidates' campaign work. So all that work of contacting individual voters and recruiting them to vote for the candidate and so on, also through this system, through these leaders. These teams or these local machines tend to be headed by mayors or governors, so people who are in office at the local level. Unlike in Indonesia, these machines continue to function as patronage distribution networks between elections, and they tend to endure from election to election as well. So they're much more permanent bodies than we find these success teams in Indonesia. And because they're built up over time and enduring, they typically have fewer guns for hire. So people tend to be more closely connected in with these teams and have a demonstrate a high degree of loyalty to them, in part because they have these high expectations of benefits after the election, right? Because these are more permanent, enduring organisations which capture power locally and are able, therefore, to distribute state benefits to members. Some focus on collective goods, but there's also a lot of individual level of targeting that goes on. So just to give you a couple of snippets from some of our survey research. So I mentioned before we did these surveys of brokers who work for candidates in both the Philippines and the Indonesia. And they're quite revealing, actually, because in structurally, these are very similar sorts of organisations. You know, these pyramids with a huge number of brokers at the base level going up through this sort of steeply ascending pyramid to the top. But you can see, for example, that we ask them, what do you expect to get out of participating? And quite a large number of the people in the Philippines said they didn't really expect to get anything, whereas a large majority in Indonesia said that they expected monetary compensation. So in other words, that idea that because you lack these ongoing connections with the candidate or the machine uh, in Indonesia, then monetary compensation becomes much more important. Likewise, on the other hand, Indonesian brokers almost just didn't really expect to be compensated if they performed particularly well. So if the voters they recruited delivered their votes at 
you know, very high rate, they didn't really expect anything out of it. It's sort of like a job you do and then you're finished. Whereas in the Philippines, you do expect that compensation because you're part of a machine that's ongoing, that's trying to encourage good performance, not only for this election, but also into the future. Also, for example, it's quite interesting, a lot of the Indonesian brokers we recruited, it turns out, they actually don't even invest a lot of energy into this effort, right? So a lot of them are not even talking to people before they put them on these lists or spending very little time in explaining what the candidate stands for. Whereas in the Philippines, they're sort of just working generally much harder in trying to make that job of persuasion. Again, because they're embedded in these networks through which they expect to get rewards, not just at the time of the election, but two or three years down the track when the candidate might help their kid get access to a government scholarship or whatever it is. We do pay quite a bit of attention into the book to trying to tease out the reasons for why these patterns are different. And basically we develop a sort of a historical institutional argument. It's really about sequencing. When and how do elections appear in a nation's historical development vis-a-vis -vis the development of parties and of a strong state bureaucracy. So in the Philippines, I mean, there's this classic, uh, this is a sort of, in some ways, it's a sort of a classic account of Philippines politics. We get these elections occurring quite early in 20th century history and local oligarchs really capturing state power at the local level. And that form of politics means that these local families have sort of continued to be able to control the local state and morselise state resources at the local level for the purposes of maintaining these machines and building the sort of loyalty on which these election mobilisation machines are based on. In Malaysia, you had a stronger bureaucracy, but then a strong party driven by this sense of ethnic mission captured power very early on and was able to retain that. So a sort of an upscaled version of the Philippines story. In Indonesia you get a very different situation where you get a very strong authoritarian regime developing during the new order period. It really is a patronage polity, so it is distributing patronage within its own structures. But elected politicians are basically shut out of that system. And in many ways you can think of the period of post-Suharto politics as this series of attempts by elected politicians and parties in particular to capture the sort of state resources, access to state resources, which should allow them to duplicate the sort of patterns we see in places like Malaysia and the Philippines. But they've never been as successful, partly because of electoral system reform. Don't really have time to go into that now, but Indonesia has adopted a very candidate-centred system which sort of erodes the ability of our parties to play that coordinating role we see in the other countries. So I think I am out of time, so I will uh, stop it there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.